The other day, I found myself thinking about how the world just feels extraordinarily heavy lately. It's not really surprising given what we've been through individually and as a collective through the COVID-19 pandemic and what we continue to see and experience as wars rage around the world, entire populations are dehumanized, and the environmental impact of global warming has left the earth unleashing its fury through floods, fires, droughts, and famine. As humanitarians, not only do we work to alleviate the resulting pain and suffering in the world, but as human beings, we're also working to navigate it for ourselves. So how do we find the light in these dark times and stay connected to a feeling of hope so we can continue showing up to do the work that the world needs us to do? This question is at the heart of what my guest Gemma Holde and I dive into as we explore part four of my book, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. Gemma is a humanitarian and development professional and human rights defender who spent over 15 years working with international non-governmental organizations and local civil society groups in East Africa and the Middle East. To provide some context for our conversation, I'd like to share the opening section of part four of Tell Me My Story, which talks about shifting from autopilot towards intentional response by moving forward and taking action. Shifting. While seeing is a state of being and the bridge from autopilot reaction to intentional response, shifting is moving forward and taking action. For many years, neuroscientists believed our brains stopped developing in our mid-20s, which meant the neural pathways that formed our default reactions were permanent. But the principle of neuroplasticity, which refers to the plastic nature of the brain, has shown that our brains are flexible and continue to change throughout our lives, giving us the capacity to create new neural pathways that can better support us during moments of stress, crisis, and trauma. Shifting is also the point at which we begin to see our own humanity, including our imperfections and flaws. For this reason, shifting our thoughts, actions, and beliefs requires that we couple our newfound self-awareness with self-compassion, which holds us accountable for being kind to ourselves, even as we make mistakes or backslide in our attempts to change and make new choices. To be clear, this new space isn't about getting rid of our old surviving stories made up of thoughts, reactions, and actions created by our shaping stories, but rather to change our relationship to them. Our surviving stories have protected us and helped us withstand every hardship, challenge, and trauma we've encountered up to now. They've helped make us who we are. Shifting allows us to accept the limitations of our stories and our imperfections, and to replace the survival lens we've been using with a new lens of self-compassion to break old patterns and lead us to healthier outcomes. My conversation with Gemma touched on several topics, including vulnerability, connection, and empathy. But the bulk of our discussion was about grief in the context of shifting. We talked about how we might make pausing in reverence to the personal and collective grief that needs to be seen, felt, and heard a part of our practice of activism. We also explored the question of how to make space for our grief in the workplace, especially when we work in fields that require us to carry the grief of the people we serve. Gemma's work, which has been inspired and informed by her own experiences with burnout, is grounded in a desire to cultivate greater care, inclusivity, and connection in humanitarian workplaces, recognizing that this is both a personal and collective responsibility. 
It's also the subject of her first book, The Vulnerable Humanitarian, Ending Burnout Culture in the Aid Sector. I'm excited to share this conversation with you, which left me feeling quite buoyed and hopeful. I hope it'll leave you feeling the same way. I'm Dimple Tabalia, and this is part four of a story about service without sacrifice. So my guest today is Gemma Holdy, and she's the author of The Vulnerable Humanitarian, Ending Burnout Culture in the Aid Sector. Gemma, I'm so, so happy that you could be here with me today. Thank you, Dimple. It's a real pleasure to be here. Today, we are talking about part four of my book that's coming out soon, Tell Me My Story, Challenging the Narrative of Service Before Self. And this part actually focuses on the concept of shifting. In the last episode, we talked about seeing, which is kind of a state of being and the bridge from the autopilot reaction to intentional response. And I like to think of shifting as the act of actually being able to move forward and take action. And in my book, I explore this concept within the context of connection, self-compassion, curiosity and empathy, vulnerability and agency. One of the reasons I really wanted to have you talking to me about this section is because I know you're doing a lot of work to help people with this idea of shifting. And so I'm curious to jump in and ask what came up for you as you move through this section of the book. Thank you. There was so much throughout the book which jumped out at me and, and I was just saying yes to because I identified so much with it because you bring out your vulnerability and just how difficult that can be showing vulnerability in the space and the development of humanitarian space. So that was certainly the initial thing that I felt was really resonating for me, just how hard it is to be vulnerable in a working culture, a working environment where often that's not welcome and it can be quite macho and the focus is on helping others and not helping ourselves. So that really stood out for me, but also just your actual lived experience that you describe in that chapter around grief mm. shifting yeah. that occurs through grief. And I feel like I'm right in that now because I lost my father. I'm so sorry. Thank you. At the beginning of this year, and in some ways, even how you describe losing your mother and losing your father sounded so similar to what happened with losing my father and losing my mother mm -hmm. six and a half years ago. What happens in that process of grief? Not what, just what happens in terms of how we show up and how difficult that can be, but what a teacher it can be in helping us actually connect on a more human level with other people when we've been through that experience ourselves. There was just a lot in there that felt very alive in me as I was reading that. Yeah, thank you. Grief is such a powerful topic, and I think it's always been there, obviously, but between COVID and as we're recording this, there's so much happening between Israel and Palestine right now. And what's been interesting for me is this week, I've actually just seen a lot of posts about grief coming up on social media. And I don't know if it's just because I'm 
more in touch with my own grief that I'm noticing it or if the algorithms have figured that out. I saw that you actually posted something really beautiful this week about grief. And there was a question that you asked that I thought that for me was a really interesting form of shifting. And so you said, or you asked, can pausing in reverence to the personal and collective grief that needs to be seen, felt, and heard be part of your practice of activism? And I really love that idea, especially for humanitarians who are working in these sectors that are filled with grief. When we are working with displaced people, refugees, people in the midst of war, there's a lot of grief to be had. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about where that came from and what you were thinking about. I guess I would say, first of all, that in experiencing and really letting ourselves experience personal grief, we're connecting the personal to the collective. And again, sort of building that understanding and connection with people that sometimes we might feel quite separated from or different from. For instance, if we are in a country with a lot of privilege and we're connecting with, say, the the situation in Palestine right now. And that piece that I wrote absolutely comes from having worked in that part of the world myself. I've worked in Palestine. I feel connected in that way. But the grief I feel is so much also wrapped up in my personal grief, particularly around losing my father, because he was quite a Palestine activist and not being able to explore that with him or speak to him about it. So just seeing how these connections are made and also really taking care of myself right now, knowing that I am vulnerable, I'm in a delicate place, I'm feeling a lot of complicated feelings around what's happening in the Middle East. And in order to really respond, I have to pause first and let myself feel what needs to be felt. And this is something that so often is not happening in our sector. Mm-hmm. There's often not the time. And so people are getting more and more stressed out under more and more pressure, more and more tired, which makes people more and more reactive. Mm-hmm. And they're not operating from a settled nervous system. They're operating from a very agitated nervous system, which is likely to mean they hit out in a way that actually separates the very people that they're perhaps trying to connect with. And I'm really trying to say that in a way that's with full compassion rather than criticizing. Yeah. Because I've been there. Like, I understand just how difficult it is. Yeah. And I'll just say one more thing on that, because actually later on today, I'm holding a grief circle on Israel and Palestine at my home. And that, again, is with the intention of there's a lot of news going around at the moment. There's a lot of difficult feelings like, can we just pause in reverence? Can we do that together in a ritual which has connection as its intention? Yeah, and I love that. I love the idea of pausing as a practice, as a form of shifting, because when we hear the word pause, it makes us think, oh, well, we're just stopping. We're not doing anything. But as an act, pausing is 
the choice. And it's a very challenging one, especially in this line of work, because as you said, and we've talked about this before, that when you are working in service of other human beings, there's this added level of pressure because you know that you doing or not doing something impacts the life of another human being. And so it can be very challenging to take those moments to pause. But I like this idea of making it a practice, right? So it shouldn't be necessarily something that we're doing just in the moments of challenge, but really a practice that we're being proactive about. The more we're building up that muscle of finding those moments of pause in our day, hopefully the easier it would become that when we encounter the challenges and the grief that we're encountering now, that that's become kind of our go-to rather than just the reactive and, you know, which is a very human way of behaving. Not only that, I think we are in a society, in a culture where we're proving our worth through our productivity. Yeah. You know, that's not just within the aid and development sector, that's kind of everywhere, certainly in the Western world. So we're encouraged to keep on going. And I noticed in part four of the book as well, how you had your moments of like carrying on with your work and pushing ahead, even on the back of losing your parents. I totally get it. I've had those moments as well this year and they're not always bad. Sometimes it's really helpful because it keeps us focused. It gives us a sense of purpose, but it can so easily then sort of, that's our go-to all the time because it is hard to sit, slow down, be with things when society is telling us not to and when it can feel like a frightening place as well to do that. Yeah. So I think it has to be done with full sense of safety and support with whatever tools or people around us that are going to honor that for us and be there for us. Yeah, I agree. For me, when I was kind of going through that grief, it was the ability to make the choice to throw myself into work in that moment because I knew I wasn't ready to really be with my grief yet. And I think that's kind of the difference. Do we make these choices to do this? Or is it that we're just go, go, going and not realizing and then getting to that point of burnout or, you know, additional forms of trauma? But I think when we're making the choice and we're cognizant of it and we're kind of watching it as we go, knowing that at some point, okay, I need to come back and actually be with the feeling, be with the experience in order to heal it. Yeah. To me, like that's a little bit of the difference. It's amazing that you are making those choices for yourself and also to recognize it is hard to do, particularly if it's not welcomed in our work environments. And I've certainly been in work environments where there's just no space given for that. Yeah. And so we kind of almost have to make the choice for ourselves and it might be doing it outside of the workplace with trusted others that can hold that, not the people that just make us distract ourselves or numb ourselves even further, which is the tempting thing to do. Yeah. But to find the people that can hold that emotion with us. And it's so funny. I was just talking to a friend about this the other day, about how, especially in Western culture, we don't 
know how to be in grief or be with grief. Uh, like my culture, the Hindu culture, we have a lot of ritual around grief. And I think that that's actually really helpful. And I know so many other cultures around the world have ritual around grief. But here, like I'm in the United States and just even, you know, things like bereavement leave, we get a day, maybe two, you know, and this idea that we're supposed to compartmentalize ourselves in a way to then come back to work and keep moving forward. It's really challenging. And I just wanted to read this passage from the book that for me really encompassed this feeling that a lot of our organizations aren't resourced to help people navigate through their grief or understand like how it's impacting them. This is from chapter 17. I returned to the office two weeks after my mom died and just two days after returning from India. Still jet lagged and moving through a thick fog of grief, I felt like a totally different person. My whole world had been upended and yet everything in the office looked exactly the same. I didn't know how to be there, to be anywhere really anymore and most of the people around me weren't equipped to help. I felt pressure from within to turn my grief off like a light switch when I was around others so I didn't make them uncomfortable. I feel like this is not unique to me. <laughs> no, and you've written it, expressed it so, so beautifully, that challenge. And not just that challenge, but how grief has a very specific essence and quality to it which is quite different from other emotions where somehow we might feel less alone with the emotion. But grief can feel very alone because I remember, particularly after losing my mum, walking around, I was doing my PhD at the time and had a similar experience of, I'd sort of was allowed a bit of time off, but then once I came back into it, it was kind of, no one talked about it. Very few people kind of came to offer me support or anything. And this feeling of like, nothing's important in a way. You have these moments of like, why are people having these conversations? I've just lost my mother. <laughs> it feels so big, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, if people haven't been through grief or they've not processed their grief, they're not going to get it in a way. Yeah. It's a really difficult, delicate time, isn't it? And as I said, I just think you expressed it so beautifully. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it does remind me of when we talk about trauma. We talk about a lot of times trauma being like a dividing line of life before the event happened and then life after. And for many of us, it all depends, of course, on what your relationships are to loved ones and things like that. But especially in the loss of a loved one that you cared about, there is something very familiar, like whether it's you or anybody else, there's a similar thing that I know will connect on that level because we have been through that. But like when that happens, it changes you. That dividing line when we come back on the other side of it. I remember sitting in meetings and like thinking, why are we even talking about this? <laughs> At the end of the day, this means nothing compared to what yeah. I've just lost or whatever. And so I'm curious, you know, how do we help organizations create those spaces for those shifts to happen so people can show up and connect with each other or show up with vulnerability 
even though it's in the workplace, even though we are now carrying the grief of the people we're serving as well. Like, how do we create space for us as the people in there doing the work as well? Yeah. Well, I just want to directly answer that question. I also wanted to just follow up from what you're saying by adding that these experiences, whether we want to call it trauma or grief or burnout, can sometimes be our biggest teachers and our biggest guides in helping us, particularly the work that you and I do around how to be more vulnerable in the workplace, how to look after ourselves better, how to not burn out. Sometimes it's going through the experience that teaches us like how do we embody what we really believe in. And certainly I've been through that with burnout and with the burnout didn't end when I wrote the book, by the way, as well. (laughs) Like we're continuously learning and that deepens our practice and deepens our offering to the world as well. But to come back to what you're saying, I do think it doesn't need to be that complicated sometimes. The excuse often can be, we haven't got time, we haven't got resources, we haven't got funding, other things are more important. But it is really about how we learn to check in with each other a little bit more and create the space to do that so that it's not necessarily sort of rushed over in a debriefing session, for instance, the end of a debriefing session on how are you feeling, by the way, it's not good enough. Yeah. And how we create actual spaces that honor the feelings. And in my book, I call it brave spaces. Yeah. Having courageous conversations and really having that intention behind it. So there has to be a sort of process and a practice to it because people are used to wearing their professional masks and are used to being perfectionists, which of course you also discuss in that chapter, I mean, part four. And it takes a while to unlearn that and to sort of remove that conditioning. So managers obviously do have a responsibility in setting a good example so that people feel that they can show up in their vulnerability. If managers are doing that themselves, whether that's through expressing their emotional struggle, talking about their mental health, or simply talking about where they've slipped up, where they've made mistakes, which is something you do so beautifully in part four of the book about your own experience with that as a manager. I think that's really, really important in creating those spaces where where people can sit together in grief or whatever other emotion that might be. But I'd also say it is a collective responsibility. You know, we have to model it for ourselves mm-hmm. and that takes time and it takes practice. So what I would say with that is, you know, what are the practices that people can engage with that help them get into that space, whether it's engaging in the practice with their colleagues or engaging with it at home in a way that then helps them show up in the workplace with greater vulnerability. And that's what I talk about a lot in my book when I'm talking about brave spaces is what are the kind of rituals that might support that? And I talk about singing and dancing and meditation, (laughs) but also just joking together, you know, even sharing a meal together and making the intention of not talking about work in that meal, all of these sorts of 
practices that can help us just remove our professional masks and be a little bit more human with each other. Yeah, I really love that. And I also do a lot of work in what I like to call brave space as well. And for me, these are spaces of empathy, empathy and connection and curiosity. And again, this idea of practice, because I feel like we're in so many parts of our life, especially professionally, we're just in reaction mode all the time. We're reacting to world events. We're reacting to things that need to happen in the workplace rather than creating these rituals and practices up front so that when we encounter the challenge, again, it's not like we're now having to deal with how do we connect with each other as well. My friend Kristen, we used to teach a course together and I loved the way that she always used to talk about empathy is like, we don't have to do anything extraordinary to show empathy, right? It's about being in that place with the other person and what she always called a ministry of presence. It's this idea of, can I be present with this person? And we all know being present is so hard these days. There's so many distractions. There's so many things on our to-do list. And yet this act of just being able to sit with someone and say, hey, you know, are you doing okay? Or what's going on with you? Just being curious and asking the question it doesn't have to take an hour out of the day. It doesn't have to be formal. I absolutely love story healing circles and story circles, healing circles. I think that they're really, really powerful, but it doesn't even have to be that. It's as simple as not making assumptions about why people are quiet today, or but asking the question and not shying away from it is the other piece of it. Because we are all busy. And I remember when I used to teach this with leaders or like work on this with leaders, there was often this feeling of, well, I don't want to take on another person's grief or their pain or their whatever. Because and we know, especially as people doing this kind of work, we are more susceptible to taking in other people's pain. But, you know, again, having a ritual and a practice around it means that we can learn to set boundaries we can learn to be there with other people without necessarily having to take on their pain as well. Exactly. I was going to say that. I think if you give the space for it, then it's not necessarily so much about, oh, I'm going to take on this person's grief and it's too much and it's too tiring. Actually, you couldn't find that you connect with people that way and you realize through their expressing, through their vulnerability, it taps into something within yourself that maybe you've not touched or looked at. But in hearing another human's experience, you realize, oh yeah, I get it. And there's a connection there that maybe can bring some hope in what might be a very difficult situation. Going back to the current situation in the Middle East, you know, we need these spaces to honor our feelings so that we remember our humanity, remember our shared humanity, no matter our political opinions and what we think is right or wrong. Actually, there's something that we share kind of beyond that. And it's important to feel into that in a world where we're constantly being reminded of our separation. I think those spaces are the opportunities to remind ourselves of the possibilities of connection. Yeah. I really love that. And what you said about hope, 
I often tell leaders, like, we have to be carriers of hope. And again, that feels like such a tall order, especially with the way the world is right now. But without hope, I mean, how do we keep moving forward and showing up every day in the way that we need to? And so I love this idea of creating hope as well through that process. And that does require a pause, as we were saying requires a pause doesn't it to feel that we're not going to get that feeling if we're just constantly firefighting and not letting ourselves slow down yeah to your point about the pause it's the space between seeing and shifting is that pause right we now have this self-awareness we're noticing and before we can shift into intentional action We need that pause to collect ourselves, to think through and all of that, and to reset our nervous systems so that we're not operating from that survival mode, but that we're operating from a place of intention. I'll speak for myself that all these things that I've written about are obviously things that I didn't practice my whole life. They're things I practice now. And I loved what you said earlier, that we are always practicing, that even though we've written these books and we've done these things, we still fall into old patterns and things like that, but we have more awareness around it now. But I'm curious, how might you have handled situations like this in the past? And what do you think it was for you that allowed you to shift and be more present to what's happening? The conditioning, I'll start with that, I think... When we're brought up a certain way and we are seeing how our families with emotional situations, then of course that's what we take on. And generally in my family, it's quite an English middle-class family. So it's all about sort of keeping the emotions locked in and pushing on through. And also just remembering, you know, that my generation, our parents were the children that came out of the Second World War. So their parents were absolutely in the war, in wartime Europe, being reminded that absolutely keep calm and carry on or whatever the sort of encouragement was to sort of keep on pushing through. That's what they grew up with. And then that's kind of what we grew up with as a result. So that's sort of been, I suppose, one, you know, it can sometimes be a coping mechanism, the sort of, right, just push it all down and carry on. Everything's fine. Yeah. And certainly, again, sort of touch on my middle-class background, that feeling of I'm too privileged. I'm not allowed to feel these things. It's too indulgent. So just not admitting to them in the context of doing humanitarian or human rights work. Mm -hmm. So I guess that was the sort of the unconscious way that I was dealing with it. And then the more conscious stuff was, I suppose, the numbing, drinking too much, distracting myself with different things, getting into sometimes quite unhealthy relationships as Mm -hmm. well. That was what I was doing a lot of the time, particularly kind of when I was really on, I suppose, on the front line of some of the conflict areas I worked in. It becomes a very easy emotional crutch to have a few drinks in the evening and get into sometimes a negative headspace as well with others at the bar, in the pub, complaining about how awful everything is. And you're not really processing them. You're just kind of releasing it all. 
but you're not necessarily processing the experience and keeping busy, constantly keeping busy. Yeah. Even on the back of some really hard times I went through, particularly when I was in Uganda working there and going through all sorts of issues and just keeping myself busy, exposing myself to more and more really upsetting, traumatizing material situations that I was working on rather than taking a step back. Yeah. So that's evolved. It's changed. It was through to go back to my, what I was saying earlier about sort of sometimes we have to feel it to really understand it and work on it. It was through burnout in a way that I then went on a path of healing and exploring different practices and I just want to say with that, there is a marker of privilege around that. Not everyone can yeah. go off to Thailand like I did. Yeah. <laughs> so not everyone can afford a yoga class or a training. And I really want to just preface it with that because I think we have to find different interventions and different practices in different contexts. Yeah. That's the stuff that's helped me. It's not necessarily relevant or accessible for everyone, but there will be other things which often come from, you were talking about your culture, the Hindu culture of grief rituals. There are different traditions that are going to support different people. And I think that also needs to be honoured when we're looking at how do we create those spaces in the work environment. Definitely. I love all of that. So as we close out, I just want to ask one final question. In the container of this brave space that we've created together, what does service without self-sacrifice look like for you? It means remaining continuously conscious of what does Gemma need right now and just being okay with that, even if it's sometimes working even more or distracting myself even more and just really being compassionate to those parts of myself and just knowing and trusting that our decisions, if it's a decision to step back for a while, is the right decision. It's not necessarily, things aren't going to fall apart. We're not going to lose things or fail by doing that. Making that time for ourselves in the service of others too and knowing that actually that can be the right decision for everyone else as well in the actions that we take. Love that. Thank you. Gemma, thank you so much for being here today and for the extraordinary work that you're doing in the world. I'm incredibly grateful to be able to witness it and hopefully support it. And for everyone listening, I can't recommend Gemma's book enough, The Vulnerable Humanitarian, Ending Burnout Culture in the Aid Sector. We'll put a link to where you can buy it as well as where you can connect with Gemma in the show notes. And for everyone who is listening, I hope you'll remember that at the heart of the word humanitarian is human and that we can choose to serve others without sacrificing our own health, well-being, and humanity in the process. So until next time, be well and thank you so much for your service. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Service Without Sacrifice. If we want to put the human back into humanitarian work, we have to get this message in front of as many people as possible. And this, my friends, depends a lot on word of mouth. So if you enjoy these conversations and find them to be valuable, please like, subscribe, and review Service Without Sacrifice on your favorite podcasting platform. 
and share it with others who might benefit. And producing this show is a labor of love. Your support will help me to continue creating new content and sharing stories of hope, healing, and human-centered leadership for years to come. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm working to build a community with my newsletter and content hub, Dear Humanitarian. You can find out more about my writing, the book, our online story healing community called The Hummingbird Circle, as well as how to work with me over at rootsinthecloud.com. And I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge how grateful I am to live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Dogue and Piscataway tribes. And I'd also like to take a moment to thank the team over at One Stone Creative for editing and producing this series. And finally, I'd like to thank you so much for your support. And most of all, thank you for your service.